Well, it was January 4th, and uh, it was a very cold January 4th in Vegas, meaning it was about 45 degrees. And uh, I thought about talking about how cold it is in Vegas, and then I realized in Jersey, 45 is like a warm front for you guys. And uh, I found myself, I'm getting done with our executive team meeting early. It was about 4.30 in the afternoon. And uh, for Christmas, my wife had brought, bought me, surprised me with a brand new triathlon bike. If you know anything about uh, tri-bikes... Um, they're the bikes where, where if you've seen riders, they're on their elbows like this, and they ride like this. And the gears are where your thumbs and fingers are, but your brakes are, are to the side. And I had all, uh, only been out on the bike one other time since Christmas because it was so frigid, meaning it was more like in the 30s than the 40s. And so I hadn't been able to be out on my bike. And so I got done with the exec team. It was a beautiful day out. I'm like, I'm going to go ride. So I run, rush home. I get changed, I jump on my bike, and I was heading back into town, and it's on this road called Lake Mead, because the road goes to Lake Mead. It's kind of ingenious. So I'm coming back on Lake Mead, and it's this four-lane kind of, um, kind of highway type of, type of road, a lot of traffic, um, many places to get on and off the road. But they have a killer bike lane, huge shoulder, safe, you're there. And I remember, I looked down, I was going about 25 miles an hour, and I looked up, and I saw this massive water truck sitting there off the side of the road. And this front door was open, blocking the bike lane. And I know for many of you, you're like, well, logically, you would slow down, put on your brakes, and try to get around it. Me thinking, like, man, I can slip through his front door and, uh, in the traffic. I can thread the needle. I can get through there. And if you know anything about road bikes, you're pretty man- maneuverable. You can find your way and, and make your way through many tight spaces. And so I was approaching the truck, getting ready to kind of thread the needle and make my way through. Next thing I knew it, I was literally flying through the air. And if you've ever been in an accident like that before, you realize that it's kind of like the slow motion part of your mind. Like, I can relive it. Literally, I'm like, I'm going to make it through. Next thing I know, I was in the air, flying through the air. I hit his front door, bent his door all, all the way back, and it, it dented his front fender. I found myself laying on the ground, literally going, what just happened? Because seconds ago, I was on my bike, and now I'm not. At that same exact moment, the, the driver of the truck came around the side of the truck. And you know when you can see someone's eyes and you know exactly what that person's thinking? It was that moment. He came around, and this is what he was thinking. Hey, idiot, how did you not see my front door, right? He had that thought because I'm laying there going, I, I saw your front door. In that exa- exact moment, we both kind of looked. And at the very back of his truck was this like eighth-inch piece of steel door like this. And he had chains on it with a hinge, and it folded down. It was a place where you could put tools. You see, I was focused on the big front door, and what I didn't see was this piece of metal laying like this. And it caught my ankle, came up, and ripped me all the way up my knee. I have a photo if you want to see it later. (laughs) Paramedics came. um, I don't know, four, five, six cop cards came. They, like, surrounded me. And um, every one of them said to me, son, you should be dead. We have no clue why you didn't hit that door and it bounced you into traffic. He goes, we don't know how you're alive. Beyond that, no neck damage, no spinal cord damage, no back, nothing, just my leg. You know those defining moments in your life where it forces you to pause? For me that day, I realized I could have lost my life. I'd never be able to hug my wife and my girls again. It was a moment that forced me 
to stop and really look at my life and what was important and not. I'm sure all of us have been through those defining moments in our life that made you stop. But you know what? Every day we have little defining moments. You know, if you'd like to exercise or even if you don't like to exercise, but you still choose to exercise, alarm clock goes off 4.35 in the morning, right? And you want to hit snooze, but you know if you hit it once, you'll hit it three or four more times. And you pull yourself out of bed, and he's like, okay, I'm going to go run. I'm going to go to the gym. Your breakfast in the morning, you know, what's better, an apple or a donut? I mean, what's better for you? Now, what tastes better, right? <laughs> Moments every day. We make decisions every day that help define the pathway of our life. Some of those moments, big or small, bring great joy. Some of those moments, big and small, bring great sorrow. Some of those moments we're in control of, we do to us, both good and bad. Some of those moments are outside of our control. And today we're going to be looking at a guy named Peter in the Bible. And one of those defining moments in his life. And it's an incredible moment between him and Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew 14. If not, it's going to come up on the screen. And in Matthew chapter 14, verse 22, it starts off like this. Immediately after this, Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and cross to the other side of the lake while he sent the people home. After sending them home, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. Night fell while he was, was there alone. Meanwhile, the disciples were in trouble far away from land, for a strong wind had risen, and they were fighting heavy waves. You see, they found themselves in, in the middle of an incredible storm. Now, the disciples, there's 12 of them. And what we know is uh, at least four of them were fishermen. That's what they did. That was their trade. That was their job. And so they spent a ton of time on the lake. And they knew that it wasn't uncommon for these big storms to kind of swell up. But even though they were masters at navigating those storms, if you've ever been on a lake or the ocean when a big storm arises, no matter how good you are with that boat, they're scary. We're out on Lake Mead, which is a huge lake in Vegas, and my brother-in-law, Troy, who's grown up um, with boats, uh, this big swell kind of hit the storm. You could see it coming over kind of Hoover Dam. You could see it coming. He was like, we got to head, head inland fast. And I saw him scared to death. He knew how to navigate it, but yet he knew the danger of the storm. And the disciples found themselves in the middle of the storm. And you think about your life, my life. We've all encountered storms in the past. Maybe not the physical storm on a lake or on the ocean, but think about the storms that you've navigated before. Maybe you're in it right now. Maybe it's a health storm. My, my sister called me about nine months ago. Have you ever gotten one of those phone calls? Your day was just going really fine until your phone rang. And her first words out of her mouth was, Chris, I have to tell you something. What? She goes, they found cancer on my tongue. What's your next question you ask at that point? How bad? How aggressive? What's the prognosis? She said, well, they're not sure. Either it's very localized and they're going to be able to do a biopsy Remove it, I'll be fine. But their fear is it's gotten into my lymph node system. And if it's there, I'm dead within months. They don't know. What do you do with that? Right? Like, either it's localized and you're fine and I should be worried, or you're dead. For 10 days, that felt like 10 years, 
We had to wait for test results. Wait for the text. Wait for the phone call. Wait for some news. So I knew, sh- should, should I be you know, moving for, to Denver for two months to spend time with my sister? Or is this no big deal? I mean, the relief came when it was found out it was very localized and she's fine. But for those 10 days, the storm just crashed in on us and we waited. For you, is it a financial storm? You know, I hear about this economic downturn. I'm like, who named it that? In Vegas, we call it the economic nuclear bomb. It landed in Vegas. 80% of our houses are upside down. Nothing you can do about it. People that owned their houses for 10 years, they're underwater. As a church, uh, we saw the storm coming early 2008 because it really hit that fall of 2008. January, we saw the storm coming and we realized financially for the church, we were to make some decisions. And um, it was January 20, 20 something. Um, the exec team is a Thursday morning. We rolled into the church. And that day, me personally, I had to let go eight full-time staff members like that. People I loved, people I've hired. But we saw the financial storm coming, and it hit Vegas harder than anyone thought. And for three and a half years, we've had to navigate through both as a church, financially, how do we survive? And we've been growing at a 20% clip, right? It's not like we cut back and we stopped growing. We kept growing. But we also have had to navigate with our church people who've lost everything. I had a conversation with a lady named Dana just last week. Her and her husband in 2007 invested in three fitness clubs in Vegas. Economy was, was thriving and booming. 2007, guess what happened in 2008? They lost everything. What do you do financially? Maybe it's in your line of work, in your business. Maybe you see the downsizing coming and you don't know. Is it going to be you next? Are you going to get the phone call? Are you going to walk in uh, one morning at 7 a.m. and by 7.05 you're done? Maybe it's a new boss. You loved your old boss. Now the new boss, and you know him or her because you've heard stories about him or her, and now you have to work for that person. What are you going to do? The storm comes in. Maybe it's relational. Maybe you're having that type of storm with one of your children where you had a great relationship with that child. Now they don't want to talk to you. They don't want to look at you. You you have zero relationship, and you're sitting there going, what happened? Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe you've caused that storm in your marriage. Or maybe you're the one sitting there and you see the storm clouds on the horizon and they're coming towards you. And you're going, I I don't know. I I wish I could outrun it. I wish I could circumnavigate it, but it's coming towards me and there's nothing I can do. You see, the question isn't, you know, if the storm's going to come, right? It's when. And not just when, but how big and how intense it's going to hit you. The disciples found themselves in the storm. But what I think is interesting in the story, back in verse 22, who sent the disciples on the boat onto the lake? It's Jesus. Don't you think he knew what was coming? Don't you think he exactly knew that the storm was going to come and what that was going to create? Because sometimes we feel like, you know, well, God wouldn't do that. God wouldn't purposely put me in the middle of a storm, would he? That's not God. He's not, God's a loving God and he's a caring God. Why would God purposely put me in the middle of the storm? Ask Job. If you've never read that story, read it. Because Satan was bored 
and wanted to do something to mess up a guy's life. And God said, guess what? Okay. Jesus purposely put the disciples in the middle of the storms. He said, you guys get in the boat. I'm going to walk around the lake. And you go. And he knew the storm was coming. Because why? Jesus knows that when we're in the middle of the storm, it's at the point where he can do the greatest work in us and through us. It's when we're the most dependent on him, where we're the most open to listen, to say, okay, God, it's out of my control. I need someone else. But what I also know about storms and the storms that uh, have been in my life is in the middle of storms, sometimes it just clouds my vision. And it's the same thing that happened with the disciples. In verse 25, it says, About three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came towards them walking on water. When the disciples saw him walking on water, they were terrified. In their fear, they cried out, It's Jesus! Doesn't say that, does it? I love the Bible because it's these moments, these authentic moments, right? Like we expect the disciples to be these super Christians, right? They're all that, you know, they do no wrong. But in that moment, guess what? They literally scream out. Their first thought, their first reaction was, it's a ghost. Hours before this, not days, not months, not years, but hours before this, guess what was happening? They were part of one of Jesus' greatest miracles, in my opinion. In my opinion, it's like the top five. You might put other miracles up there. But my opinion, it was one of the top five miracles Jesus did. You see, Jesus was teaching to what the Bible says was about 5,000. But back then, they only counted adult men. So what we know is with kids and with women, it was 15 to 20, 25,000 people. A massive crowd of people. And they got late in the evening and everyone was hungry. And the disciples' ingenious idea was, well, just send them home and let them find food somewhere. And Jesus said, no, we're going to feed them. And the disciples were like, with what? We have uh, two fish and five loaves of bread. Jesus blessed it. And after they fed everyone, the Bible says there's 12 baskets left over. They had just witnessed that. The disciples were in the middle of that. They saw these, these two fish and five loaves and all of a sudden, What? We fed 15, 20, 25,000 people, and there's leftovers? Hours later, they couldn't clearly identify that that was Jesus. Beyond that, they had seen miracle after miracle after miracle happen. Peter himself had witnessed Jesus heal his mother-in-law. They'd seen the blind uh, able to see, the lame walk, the leper healed. One of the craziest miracles, one of the funniest miracles, in my opinion, was when Jesus literally t- looked at two guys that were possessed by demons, took the demons, sent them into a herd of pigs, and they jumped over a cliff. Hilarious. Unless you love animals, and I'm sorry for the little pigs. <laughs> right? I mean, think about that moment, right? You're like, wow, these guys are messed up, and now the pigs are messed up? You know, that was just crazy. The disciples had witnessed all of that. And they still looked at this man walking on the water and still said, it's a ghost. What happens in the middle of the storm? Sometimes it's difficult to see. But here's the cool part. Verse 25, who meets them in the middle of the storm? Jesus. Don't you think Jesus could have sat on the shore, like chilling back, eating some extra fish? extra bread. He had 12 baskets. Couldn't he just be chill? Hey guys, row harder. Come on, pick it up. Come on. You guys, right. He could have just stayed on the shore, but what did he choose to do? Meet them right there. And I want you to know 
whatever storm you're going through right now in life, Jesus is right there with you. He has put himself right in the middle of the storm with you. And listen to these words he said in verse 27. He said, don't be afraid. Take courage. I am here. And that's what he's saying to you. And I hope you know that. Whatever's going on in your life, he's saying to you, take courage. Because he is with you. He's in the middle with you. He's walking beside you. He's not waiting somewhere on the shore just saying, hey, when you get here, then I'll help you. He's right there beside you saying, I am with you. But you know what he loves about the storm? The storm forces you to make a decision. All storms do. They will force you to up to a point where you have to make a decision and listen to what's going on. Verse 28, then Peter called to him, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you walking on the water. And Jesus simply said, yes, come. So many people focus on that moment. Whereas Peter going, hey, Jesus, I want to walk on the water. You know, can I? That's cool. They focus on that, which is an important part of the story. But for me, the most important word is a two-letter word, if. Catch that? If. See, so many times in churches, we talk about the word doubt in a negative way. If you're a man, if you're a woman of faith, you won't doubt. Doubt's bad. Peter, looking at Jesus, standing on the water, had tremendous doubt. He still said, if it's you, I'm still not convinced it's you. I'm still not convinced, but I'm willing. You see, what do you do with your doubt? Uh, Last June, a year ago, June, I had an amazing opportunity to go to Moab. And if you know anything about mountain biking, Moab is like the pinnacle of all mountain biking. It is like the place where every mountain biker um, wants to go to. And I got invited, uh, my good friend Jeff and two other guys to go. And uh, let me just say this. I own a mountain bike. uh, And at that point, that mountain bike had never touched a mountain. You have one of those, right? (laughs) It touched your garage. But uh, I'd never done mountain biking. I'd done a ton of road biking, but not mountain biking. But you know what? I'm a confident guy. You know, Nothing scares me. I can conquer the mountain, right? Jumped in, uh, my friend's Hummer, drove seven and a half hours from Vegas to Moab, literally got out of the, the, the car at 2.15 in the afternoon. It was a cool 105 degrees. And uh, we jumped on the hardest trail in all of Moab. It's called Slick Rock. No problem. I got this covered. I can do this. It's a mountain. I can ride. I'm not scared. Five minutes into the ride. I found myself at, at the top of about a 20-foot drop, not gradual drop, straight down. <laughs> First guy went down, no problem. He'd been there before. Second guy went down, he, yeah, no problem. He'd been there before. I came up to the ledge, literally, I came up, to, and I just put on my brakes, and I stared, and I'm like, ah. My friend Jeff came beside me and said, Chris, I know, it's freaky. I'm like, ah, thanks. He goes, it's what you need to do. Get your butt all the way back. It needs to almost touch your tire. Put all your weight back. Do not touch your front brake. Don't. If you do that, you fall over, you die. Okay? Don't die. Okay. <laughs> back brake. Feather it. If you put it on too hard, you die. Okay? Don't die. Um, feather it. And he goes, and then this is what you're going to feel. You're going to feel your back tire go like this, back and forth. And it's going to feel like your whole bike's going to come out. It won't, but it'll feel like that. You got that? Okay. Don't die. Don't die, butt back, no front brake, feather back, uh, or back brake, okay, and 
bike's going to feel like it's going to, but it won't. I got that. So second time I looped around, and I was like, I, I, I can do, I can, I can, and I stopped, and I looked. I'm like, I can't do this. He came up beside me and said, Chris, trust your bike. Trust me. I know what I'm saying. I've done this. You, you can do it. So I looped around again, and I knew this third time, either I was going to do it and have an amazing experience, or literally I was going to have to walk my bike back, and I would just give up. It was that moment. It was that moment. And uh, I looped around, and I hit. I didn't stop. I got my butt all the way back. I started going down. I was feathering my back brake. I was like, literally, my hand was like, don't touch it. Don't touch my front brake, right? And I felt my bike go. I'm like, okay, and I hit that bottom, and I literally threw my bike, and I jumped up. The adrenaline was pumping, and I just screamed like a little schoolgirl. I was like, yeah, you know? And they're all looking at me going, really? That's nothing. Just wait until the next one, you know? <laughs> right? I had all this doubt, serious doubt. I literally thought I could die five minutes in, first day. But I listened, and I trusted everything Jeff said. And you know what? Peter still had doubt. But you know what? He was looking at someone that he thought was the Messiah. And he goes, if he is, I can walk on water. Verse 30. But when he saw the strong wind and waves, he was terrified and began to sink. Save me, Lord, he shouted. And Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him. He said, you have so little faith, Jesus said. Why did you doubt me? That word doubt in the original language literally means standing uncertainly at two ways. Think about that. Standing uncertainly at two ways. Jesus looked at Peter and said, you're at a fork in the road. Who are you going to choose? Which way are you going to go? Are you going to put your life in my hands? Are you going to stay in the comfort of the boat? Are you going to choose to take a step out and trust everything into me? Or are you going to choose to do what you think is right, what you think is logical, what you want to do? But Peter, it's up to you. Which way are you going to go? And it's the same thing he's saying to you and I. It's your choice. But you're either going to put your life 100% into the hands of Jesus Or are you going to go your own way? But no decision is a decision, isn't it? So what are you going to do? You see two chapters right after this in Matthew 16 and another amazing defining moment in in Peter's life. Jesus is with the disciples and he asked the question. He said, uh, who do people say that I am? And several disciples spoke up and they said, well, some people say Jeremiah and some people say Elijah and some people say other great prophets. Some people say John the Baptist. And then Jesus flipped the question. He said, but who do you say that I am? And guess who was first to talk? Peter. And without missing a beat, I could just picture this moment. Jesus said, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And then there's this moment Jesus looked back at Peter and he had been going, going by the name Simon. He said, Simon, son of John, I will now call you Cephas, which, which is Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then we see Peter in Acts chapter two and who's leading out the church, the church, the hope of the world. Jesus slid all the chips in and said, you know what? 
It's the church, a church like Renaissance, people like you and me. It's the hope of the world he placed into Peter's hands, into the church, to say, you know what? It's on you. And in that moment, Jesus looked at Peter and said, remember that time in the water when I said, choose which path, your path or my path? Choose. Guess what Peter did? He went all in and said, Jesus, I give you my life. The question is, are you going to give Jesus your life? All of it. 99.9% is not good enough for him. Today is July 10th. And uh, 38 years ago, um, I was born. I had nothing to do with that. Uh, That whole scenario was outside of my control. And for some of you, you think 38 is young. For some of you, you think 38 is old. And um, for some of you, you feel my pain because I'm approaching 40. And some of you are like, you're a jerk, shut up. <laughs> July 4th, 1983, I accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior, forgiver, leader, and friend. Cool day to have that moment. It was July of uh, 1989, where I was at this, this camp conference thing. There was two to 3,000 teenagers there, Adrian, Michigan. And uh, I walked down and I said, I had no idea what I was doing, but God said, go. And I said, okay. And I walked down and I said, God, I'm going to give you my life, all of my life into ministry. I had no clue what that meant. I had no clue what the journey was going to be like. I'm the first pastor in my family. It wasn't like I come from this line of pastors. But I said, God, you're telling me to go and I will, I'll follow. It was July of 1995 when I got a call from a church in Las Vegas, Nevada. I was like, church? Las Vegas? Really? People live there? There's grocery stores? I packed up my Pontiac Sunfire uh, with everything I owned, which didn't take a lot. And uh, I moved out to Las Vegas where uh, I've been part of a church that gets God's radical grace. A church that that understands that churches are just supposed to be about people like you and I who accept everyone for who they are, where they've come from, and to say, yeah, come in. Let's do this journey together. I've been part of a church that have reached out to thousands and thousands and thousands of people's lives. Vegas is a better place because church is like central there. But God started this storm in my life. And I tried to ignore it for a long time. I have a great wife, and uh, she's pretty persistent. And uh, she helped get me through the storm. But God was saying, it's time to take another step out of the boat. And I find myself here in New Jersey in July. (laughs) Kind of weird, right? All Julys. I don't know what's, what's rolling in your life. But what I know in this room is all of you have come out of a storm. You're in the middle of a storm. Or you see the clouds on the horizon and you know it's coming your way. And what I hope you hear today is what Jesus said to the disciples. Take courage for I am here. Because he plants himself right 
in the middle of the storm with you. Right in the middle of the storm, he's there with you. And he's saying to you, take courage, for I am here. The band's going to come back up, end with a killer song that I think it says it all. Um, but let's pray. Lord, I just ask, I don't, I don't know where everyone is at in this room. But what I know is life is life. And um, it can be pretty brutal at times. And there can be times where it doesn't make sense. And there's times where um, we try to figure it out. And there's not much to figure it out. So, Lord, I just pray that every person in this room realizes that you are smack dab right with them, right in the middle of the storm. And I pray that they will hear your words when you say, take courage, I am here. May I pray.